0: honor the memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg this year with a gift from Descent Pins. 50% of the profits go to great organizations like the New Georgia Project and the Baltimore Action Legal Team. Visit DescentPins.com to find RBG's Descent Collar jewelry and lots of other great gift options today. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. For even the most experienced writer, the act of writing and then revising over and over and over again can be onerous, painful work. Worse, all of that effort can be for naught. Revisions can create new problems or fail to address existing ones. The list goes on. But worst of all, All that hard work could be entirely misplaced. An author may be attempting to write in a mode that they cannot tame. However, that kind of failure isn't necessarily because the writer is a hack or a fraud. They may have simply been toiling in the wrong genre, but there's nothing stopping them from beginning again, except themselves. In the December issue, Vivian Gornick writes about the life and career of Storm Jameson, A writer who found her true métier in memoir, decades after writing many competent but unremarkable novels. I spoke with Gornick, a master of the memoir, about Jameson's career and how memoir can be more freeing and imaginative than fiction. I thought we could start off by you could read a passage of Journey from the North, and then we could talk about why you chose it.
1: Oh well that's easy. I'll just read the beginning. Which is, um, I mean, the, the first page and a half. I think it should be obvious that the tone is uh, was uh, uh, just lured me instantly. It's it's the tone of this book. To begin with, let me just say, Storm Jameson was born in 1891 in the town of Whitby, which is a coastal town in Yorkshire, in England. Uh, similar to the main coast in America. So it was as if she was like Edna Malay, who was born and raised in a remote, what was then a remote town in Maine. And growing up in Maine was just as uh, influential for Malay and everybody else who ever grew up in the really hard Northeast. Uh, Yorkshire is even more powerful People never lose their accents. Uh, they never really lose the personalities that, that are formed there. And she was one of those. There are many writers who come from Yorkshire and England, and they're very distinctive types. Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath's husband, oh, the, I shouldn't pronounce <laughs> him that way. Um, he, too, comes from Yorkshire and remains um, deliberately, you know, they deliberately hold on to their, their toughness. So, given all that, here is the beginning of Journey from the North, and anybody can see why I was so attracted. Okay, here we go. There are people, there are even writers, whose lives were worth recording because they were passed in strange or exciting ways, or involved famous persons, or could be written as the story of a great mind in search of its beliefs. I have a good, but not a great mind. My chances of meeting great men have been few and I have not sought them. The men and women who have come nearest, slaking my curiosity about human nature, have been obscure as well as alive with humors. The humors of the great are usually too well groomed. What is the record of my life worth? The life of a writer treated with justice in circles where camaraderie was the merciful rule. Perhaps little, except that as a life it spans three distinct ages. The middle-class heyday before 1914, the years between the wars, and the present, which is the 1960s. Three ages so disparate that to a person who knows only the third the 60s, the others are unimaginable. Possibly I lack the coolness, to give a dependable account of them to the ignorant. I can try. That arrogant, half-sarcastic phrase, it can be tried, is one I heard so often in my North Riding childhood that it has become an instinct. I seldom know when I'm being led astray by it. It was a servant saying, but a Northern servant. The span of my life is even longer than it seems since its roots are twisted round hundreds of lives passed in the same place. Only a life starting from centuries of familiarity with the same few fields and streets is better than fragmentary, by which she means her own family has been and would be for generations. If there is any tenacity in me, any constancy, if there is an eye under all the dissimilar eyes seen by those who know or knew me as daughter, as young woman, undisciplined, confident, absurd, as wife, as friend, the debt is owed to obscure men and women born and dying in the same isolated place during hundreds of years. All I could do to destroy the pattern I have done. How far can I hope to give a true account of an animal I know only from the inside? Nothing would have been easier for me than to write one of those charming poetic memoirs which offend no one and leave a pleasant impression of the the author. I am trying to do something entirely different. Trying in short to eat away a double illusion. The face I show other people and the illusion I have of myself by which I live. Can I? It is true that what one sees from the inside is the seams, the dark, tangled roots of feeling and action, which may be just as misleading as partial as the charming poeticized version I'm trying to reject. But it is a truth known only to me. The real story of a life would consist in a recital of the experiences few or many in which the whole self was engaged. The greater part of such a book would be very dull, since as often as not, our whole self turns its back contemptuously on the so-called great moments and emotions and engages itself in trivialities, the shape of a particular hill, a road known in infancy, the movement of the wind through grass. The things we shall take with us at the last will all be small. I wrote this, or something very like it, in a novel published 30 years ago. It is probably true, the pain and ecstasy of youth, the brief happiness, the long uncharted decline can be summed up in the tune of a once popular waltz of no merit or the point in a country lane where the violence and hopelessness of a passion suddenly became obvious or the moment when a word, a gesture, nothing in themselves gave the most acute sensual pleasure. None of these can be written about. Okay, that's it. So for me, the tone of this was extremely alluring. I knew, you know, she had written 45 novels, and I was familiar with her as a writer who was, you know, a very familiar type, a journeyman writer. Mm -hmm. She, you know, put out a a dependable product. She wrote a book, more than a book a year. I don't know if you've read the piece that I wrote, but it, it tells all that. She was really an extraordinarily um, productive writer of very middling talent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Even what I just read you, she doesn't really manage in these novels. And all of these novels are taken from her own experience. They all they all rest on her own marriages, her own uh, runaway life. She was, as I said, she was born in 1891. She was slated to become her mother, to live her mother's life. Uh, which was out of a sea captain in, uh, in this hard-bitten remote little uh, town way up on the northern coast. And she rebels against everything. She gets educated, comes to, to London and lives this life, which she records in the 45 novels. But they all, none of them have the texture that this, this memoir has. None of them manage it. And these two books, the, this, this autobiography, Journey from the North written in two volumes is a miracle of of rich textured writing none of which appears when she is quote unquote making things up.
0: Right. No, I I mean I I was very um I did read your piece. Uh, yeah. t- obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you should have. That's your your homework. Yes, it was no, it was it was, a, it was excellent and I think the questions when you're discussing how her novels for each decade sort of fit the zeitgeist of that era. So like the tragic post-war era, right. the, the you know, dealing with fascism and d- double agents and that sort of thing. And she, she was somebody who, I mean, part of her approach was not just taking her own experience and trying to make it fiction, but it was also trying she was trying to support herself. It was a very sort of economic oh, yes, yes, minded yes. way of approaching yeah. fiction.
1: You know, well that's what everybody who everyone from time immemorial who is incapable of producing anything but hack work defends themselves by saying I had to make a living. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that is nonsense. She did what she could do. And what she could do turned out to be that hack work. What was remarkable about her was that she was driven to work as continuously as she she did. Regardless of what she said and how frantically involved deep within herself she was with the family, with everything she came from, it was like a penalty. And working at these books were her release. Mm -hmm. They released her from what, you know, Today she would have been in psychoanalysis for twenty years. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm really. That's what she would have done. She would have been in psychoanalysis for twenty years. Then she suffered, and so she sat down and wrote two books a year. I mean, you know, as as everyone who knew her kept telling her, "You're writing too much." However, when she was seventy-eight years old, she sat down to uh, and and she she defended, as I say, and as she says. She defended herself by saying, listen, I had to put food on the table. I had to pay the rent. I had to do this then. But that is nonsense. Nobody ever writes down and nobody ever writes um, less than they can. I don't believe that. I've never believed it. Nobody sets out to be a potboiler writer. And if they do, they're lying to themselves. You know the history of journal, of ta- especially tabloid journalists is unbelievable. People who spent years writing for tabloids would tell themselves, Ah, if I could only make a living, I would b- be writing better books, better things. And of course, they can't. They don't. They, they never did. And uh, and sh- that's why she's amazing for what she did at the age of seventy-eight.
0: Absolutely. It was surprising to look back at an interview you did with the Paris Review in 2014 and see that when the interviewer, uh, Elaine Blair, asked about your parents' reading habits, you told her, in very similar words, the same anecdote that begins this essay about giving your mother a copy of Journey from the North. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm no kidding. Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's... It, but I mean... In what context? What did I? Why did I tell that to Elaine? Well, she asked you about your parents' reading habits. Oh, 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 so. And you immediately went there. To that? To that. So. Oh, no kidding! I don't remember. And her statement that she would be so lonely after, right. your, your mother's statement that she would be so lonely after she yeah. finished it. So, why do you think Jameson's work came up so quickly in response to that question?
1: Uh, well, because it was so striking in my history. Uh, with my mother and reading, I never forgot that. I, obviously, I never forgot that incident because she so rarely provided me. She was, as I say, she was a passionate reader, but she was an ignorant reader, and she didn't know what to do with it. And uh, here in this one instance that was so striking, that it, it was never repeated. There was never another instance in which she said such vivid And um, poignant things about reading and I felt her capacity I felt it as an instance of the life that she could have had the inner life that she could have had if she'd only known how to be brave enough to pursue it you know having an inner life requires a little courage (laughs) it's not something that um, is given (laughs) to you you, you develop it. And my mother was terrified of that. At the same time, the reading of this book was, was these books are like a link to what she had never had the courage to pursue. And that's what reading meant. Well, obviously that's what it means to me. And I was trying to say from that incident, I saw my own history. I saw, I saw what I had come from. I was proud of her for her response to the Jameson books and uh I saw what she could have been that's what I I think I was meaning when I mm. when I said that. So yeah, this was an unusual an unusual event in our mutual life with books, her response to the Jameson book and I and I never forgot it and obviously I've gotten a lot of mileage out of it. <laughs> 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 i made a lot of use out of it. <laughs> Um, so does that answer your question?
0: Yes. No. The beautifully, clearly, in Jameson's life and in your mother's life and in your own life, there's sort of this. Ge- there are these generational things that are yeah. keeping a woman in a certain place. Whether it's, oh, you have to write fiction to be taken seriously. You can't write memoir. You you don't feel necessarily supported in being brave, as you said, and having a larger interior life. Right. And I I wanted to ask, you you write about how Jameson's trajectory as a writer partially mirrors your own, because you started out as a young writer with a sense that novel was the most serious prose form. Yeah. And also like her, but fortunately much earlier in your life, you discovered that the novel form wasn't right for you, and that memoir was. So how do you think Jameson's life might have been different if she made the discovery sooner?
1: That's a very good question, and uh, I can't answer it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I've thought about that, too. I mean, obviously, I've, I've thought about that a lot. And I wanted to actually say that in the piece. I don't think I did, but but I do in a way. But it's it's a false question. I don't know. There's no way. There's no way. For me to understand that. You know, the memoir is not a genre that has been respected, and and it's a genre that many people who have felt at home in have insisted on its limitations by saying it can't do what what a novel can do, namely, it can never move the reader the way a novel can. Well, in modern times, that is being challenged a lot. There are a lot of people like me who use nonfiction, this kind of personal narrative, to exercise what we think are our storytelling abilities. And we look upon it as always telling a story whenever we sit down to write anything that's nonfiction. But I don't know how far we get. I don't know how successful anybody really is. and I don't know at all in that time when it had no cachet whatever, what it would have been able to draw from her. I feel that she wrote this book in desperation because, you know, as I made clear in the piece, by then she was really very insecure. She thought mm-hmm. what she'd done was worthless. And she was hungry to leave something worthwhile. But I don't know at all what she would have been capable of doing if she had developed more the personal narrative uh, that she had within her. I, I really don't know. I, I often feel re- rereading this, this book that this was wrenched from her,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that she didn't really want to do this, but she needed to save herself in her own, in her own mind before she died. I really do believe that, that she wrote out of a, a terrible need to to you can feel it and we can I, I can feel it anyway, that she's writing to save herself to 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 justify her existence. So I don't know. It's it's a complicated business. Yeah. What would she have done if she had followed something she had a, a deeper bent for? I, I don't I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, you're 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 talking about, you know, the memoir form and how it didn't get much respect back then. And it's it's certainly more common now. Oh, yeah. um, Because there's this there's this assumption that, you know, novels are more demanding of the imagination of the writer than memoirs, since in the memoir, you're not making stuff up. Yeah, But in your account, what makes Journey from the North work is that it finally allows Jameson to, quote, stretch her imagination to the limit. So could you yeah. could you talk about the role imagination plays when memories are the material? Y- yes, of
1: course. It's obvious. I mean, it's what writers are allowing themselves, whether they know it or not. For instance, take writers like um, Doris Lessing, who were passionate about being novelists or Philip Ross, whom I hate, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um they both they both wrote at one point or another they felt obliged to write a memoir. She wrote when she had run out of steam as a novelist, so she said she's gonna now write the same material as it actually happened. Well those words alone are are death, you know, as it actually happened. She's meaning literally, and so is he, because neither one of them felt at home with themselves as writers unless they were speaking through what they called an imagined surrogate. mm mm-hmm. That word surrogate is big in in the book I wrote on narrative writing called The Situation of the Story, in which I say essentially that the writing that I am doing is unsurrogated, the I, in it is an unsurrogated I. So now that has responsibilities in itself. I am clearly I. Though what makes nonfiction is that the the, the first person narrator is clearly the writer, not anybody else. Mm-hmm. And after that, you use that, then you use it to tell a story. Now, once you're set on telling a story, you're essentially set on shaping a piece of experience. That has to apply in the, in the, in the uh, memoir once the writer realizes that it's this form in which she or he feels most at home. You know, it's not really very complicated. I mean, we're making it sound complicated. But the fact is, Doris Lessing wrote three memoirs, every one of them lousy, because she didn't trust the form. She didn't trust herself. She didn't believe in herself as a storyteller through her own unsurrogated self. But if you read The Golden Notebook, it's clearly her. I mean, it's it's like 600 pages of her own life, which she is a great pains to present as a fictionalized character. It's the only way she felt at ease with herself so that that made her expand instead of tighten up and with me it turned out the uh, exactly the other way around. When I sat down to write a story as a young woman, I tightened up. Everything became summary. You know, I couldn't I couldn't let myself go. I couldn't expand. I couldn't I couldn't make my thoughts um, occupy the page it's a mystery of it's only a mystery if you look it up that way but it's it's a mystery of temperament of, of one's particular uh, talents of one's way of seeing things the problem years ago was that if you, if you saw it as a memoirist you or an essayist mm-hmm you were screwed because it was a form that was not respected. So since it was not respected, nobody wanted to practice it. And so since nobody wanted to practice it, it remained lame. You didn't have talented people. Um, You didn't have talented people doing it. It's very simple. (laughs)
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, one of the most compelling parts of this essay, at least for me and I think many other people, felt this too is that the title of the essay is if only I could begin again yeah she does begin again yeah and she creates something truly amazing and again as you say it was late in life she sort of felt certain pressures sort of motivated to leave something of yeah great value behind yeah and for somebody who is struggling with their voice if it's in the novel in memoir, do you think that there's anything definable, you know, temperamentally, psychologically, or maybe in terms of personal history, that tends to make someone a memoir writer than a fiction writer? Is there something about a person that inherently makes them better in memoir than fiction?
1: Yes, it's there in all the um, examples I give. The men, Edmund Goss, James Baldwin, In England, Patrick Lee Fermer, yeah, I mean, there is many, many people who make their mark through nonfiction, and there's no explaining it, why they can, I mean, James Baldwin is an absolutely secondary fiction writer, no matter what his defenders say, I mean, you know, I adore him, he's deeply important. But he's absolutely important as an essayist. Joan Didion, she will go down in history in American letters as an essayist, not as a not as a, a novelist. I would, you know, bet anything on that. Um, those novels don't t- stand the test of time at all, but the essays do. She's a great essayist. Who can explain this? I mean, and indeed, why does it need explaining? it should be something that you just see and you accept look at all the people who write poems who can't write an essay who can't write and i believe that full really fully i've never seen a writer who can write equally well in any in all almost every writer wants to write in every form poems essays i know so many writers who and they whatever the work is it's excellent it can only be achieved in one in one genre I'm writing an essay now on the writer, Alfred Hayes. Mm-hmm. If you heard of him, you know who he is. Yes. Actually, it's in that, he, there's a piece on him in the same issue of Harper's. That's right, yes. Yeah, Alfred Hayes. So Hayes was, Hayes did everything. Hayes was a poet, Hayes was a screenwriter, Hayes was a, a newspaper reporter, and Hayes was a novelist. The only work he did that went deep and that has lasting quality are three of the novels that he wrote. Nothing of any of the rest of it, not the
0: screenwriting, well, not the What, po- uh, what about, what about uh, Bicycle Thieves? Bicycle he didn't thieves write is Bicycle con- Thieves. He just contributed to
1: He gave him some notes. <laughs> <laughs> bicycle Thieves. He
0: just started his apprenticeship there. Right,
1: yeah, <laughs>
0: bicycle <laughs> thief. <laughs> I will. I have to. I felt the need to stand up for bicycle thieves. For, for
1: Hayes? Oh, I adore Hayes. I'm writing the most, the most celebratory piece imaginable on Hayes. But it's only those novels. It's these three novels that are so unbelievably different in quality and uh, everything from everything else he wrote. And you see, it was only in this now Hollywood. Gave him his metaphors. Hollywood gave him you know noir gave him his 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 life, mm-hmm. but it was just what he was able he was able to do with what was given to him. that's the miracle. But I mean, it's such an example of how a writer finds the right métier uh, or the right genre and really can't can't duplicate it. You could never he he could never write a screenplay that was the equivalent. Which is really interesting, which is how he spent his life, you know, as a hack writer. But look at all those fantastic noirs that were written while he was in Hollywood. You know, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity. Those are great noirs. And he was not responsible for any of those.
0: Right. That's all. (laughs) Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. It's all right. I can talk
1: by the yard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very suited to this medium. So, don't be don't be afraid. <laughs> um, you know, you you mention um, haze, yeah. And your most recent book is Unfinished Business: Notes of yeah. a Chronic Rereader, and you discuss the pleasure and the importance of rereading. Did you ever consider writing about Jameson? In unfinished business, or was there any connection between writing that book and your decision to reread her and write this uh, this essay? Yeah, um, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I,
1: I didn't consider her. She 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 doesn't mean to me. Uh, n- no, actually, I shouldn't say. Is it's not that she couldn't have gone into that book. It's just I didn't. I've not had that particular experience with her where i felt the a real change in my reading of her. Mm. You know what i mean, yeah. Those books were just chosen because they were the most distinct experience for me. That's all. But no, no that's a, it's a good question. Um no, i di- I, di- I didn't I, di- I didn't feel that way about storm Jameson.
0: No. And i guess going back to this question of Genre? Do you feel like the growth of autofiction suggests that the distinction between fiction and memoir is becoming less relevant to readers, or that perhaps the the memoir form has you know is is actually going to sort of grow in interesting new ways?
1: You know, I'm not really sure. I understand what autofiction is. Uh, I, what is the distinction between autofiction? and straightforward memoir. I mean, autofiction, supposedly, the, the, the narrator or, the, I mean, the major characters are clearly drawn from the writer's life. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's an unnecessary development, this calling things autofiction. When I read the Topeka Report, or school, school, I saw it as a novel. I knew that much of the uh, uh, the details surrounding these characters was drawn from his life. I knew who his parents were, and I knew uh, that all of these things were actual references. However, you could feel, and I don't know how to defend this, but you could feel that the writer's agenda was that of a novelist, not a memoirist. Hmm. The memoirist is looking to understand themselves. When I write, if I write something memoirish, at the bottom of it is I am searching to understand, I, the narrator, to understand something about myself. It's self-discovery that's at the heart of the memoir. But the agenda for a novel is different, completely different. When I read Lerner's book, I thought or I read two of his books and in each case, I know that they're based on actual events that he has taken and fashioned a story out of. But the agenda behind it is definitely fiction. It's fictional, there's no question. Nobody's going to think hey, either of those books are memoirs. So this is a made-up development. It's not it, it, it's it's just made-up autofiction. Um it really is. It's just it's just a made up wor- word. It doesn't describe. You know, writers forever, forever have been accused of writing autobiographical novels, and they've all uh, they've always been enraged. the The, the novelists who, who um, are, said, "Oh, this is just drawn from her life," and they and the right thing to say, and they mostly do say. Yes, it's drawn from my life, but it's not my life. Mm-hmm. I have made use of the experiences of my actual life in order to put a fiction on the page. The agenda clearly is so different immediately. You, I mean, if you and, and I can't defend this the way James Wood would. I don't have that critical <laughs> faculty. I don't know how to say it the way he would say it if he wanted to say this. He has an apparatus at his fingertips a critical apparatus I don't have, but but I know he would know how to defend such a uh, position. So I don't know what autofiction, why it's necessary, why it was necessary. It's just like putting another wrapping on the package. But I I don't I you know anyway I'm stumbling around here. You no, know what no, I'm saying?
0: I no no no. I I think you're 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 onto something. I mean, it is just sort of it's become. very common mode i know fiction but it's it but i think you're you're right to say that it's kind of it's it's not actually anything new i mean because i think especially when you look at again going back to gender you know anytime a woman writes something in any medium be it film a play a novel there is this assumption that it's autobiographical, or if it's confessional, even if the author explicitly says, this is not, and that it right. is actually something personal. And it's right. and it's kind of a, oh, in the I past, see. it has been a subtle way to kind of be like, this is less yeah. because this is just typing. Right? I and see. it's, you know, I, and, and so I think, you know, your example of Ben Lerner, it's like, well, maybe this is a way to sort of legitimize uh ways in which women modes that women have traditionally worked in or sort of make that yeah that seem more respectable in a certain way
1: so you think it's mostly um an aid of women's writing that auto fiction has been developed that the idea of it is developed
0: no no I think it's it's an aid of um it's it's repackaging something that's that's right. been around for Repack- a long time yeah and right. and that you know the the formerly disreputable tendency to to assume something is autobiographical or confessional. That's that's um right that's going away now because more people yeah. are getting in on it now. Right, right. But I, I um,
1: yeah. Well, you you just about said it. Um. Anyway, it's it is it isn't something I have anything really to contribute to. Okay.
0: My my final question is: What are you reading? Now or rereading? Oh,
1: at the moment, well, I've been rereading re- re- repeatedly, Alfred hayes novels since yes. I'm writing about them. But what am I reading now? I never know how to answer that question. I'm I'm reading mostly in order to um entertain myself. You know, in other words, I'm not reading with any demand in my head. I'm reading because of the pandemic and because I'm home so much and um, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I'm about to read a a book by Rachel Cusk called Aftermath, the story of her divorce. I have only read I've read two of those three books of hers. And this is I think, supposedly, clearly not nonfiction. I want to see what she does here that would be different from the sound. Because here's a good example, by the way, of the confusions. Those books of hers, they read like memoirs to me. Mm. But I'm really impressed with the persona that she has made out of herself. You know what I mean? Mm. In other words, th- that's autofiction, right? What she does, they call it autofiction. Now, those books she calls novels. This one she does not call a novel. I'm going to read this with the with the aim of seeing the, the differences in uh, effect of these three books. Now I'm also reading a very peculiar book that was given to me. It's a book that was written about 30 years ago called The World As I Found It. It's called a novel mm-hmm. and it's written by a man named Bruce Duffy. <laughs> Whom I did ne- never heard of, and this is an imagining of the relationship between Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein. Hmm. Right. And it's very intelligent, and it's very well written, and, pecu- and it's very peculiar in its in its writing uh, arrangement. And the truth of the matter is, I'm three quarters of the way through, and I don't know what I think of it. it's a strange book so when i say strange i mean it gives me i don't know how good it is or i don't know why why it has fallen into oblivion which it obviously has all i know is that it's the kind of work that makes me is making me think about what is it we call a novel? Why am I not feeling this is why I'm, I know it's a novel, but I don't know what the word means applied to this piece of writing. Uh, I don't know where this thing is going. I don't know if it has to go somewhere. So in other words, I'm not caught up in the book. (laughs) 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 You're making me realize what I'm, what I'm, what I'm doing here. (laughs) In other words, when I read Alfred Hayes, I am enraptured. I'm completely sunk in him. I'm not thinking about any of the, why is he doing this, why is he doing that? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> this book is, 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 I'm enjoying it, but it has definitely not, it has not given me the pleasure of losing myself uh-huh. in the book. At the same time, I walk around, I go, I do go to a gym. My gym allows me to walk around a track for two miles every day, mm-hmm. which I need to do and I listen to books on it. you know mm-hmm. I listen to audio i was I have a this little telephone, and I listen to to books and what do I mostly listen to, Anthony Trollope? <laughs> 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 I don't want to think when I'm walking around the drag. I don't want to think, and I don't want to. Um, I just want the pleasure of those words. Of those, he goes down like ice cream. So, <laughs> so <laughs> there you have my whole life <laughs> reading.
0: <laughs> well, no, that's that's a. Uh... That's wonderful, and I'm and I'm <laughs> glad that you can like. I'm glad that anybody can still sort of have freedom of movement during these times, or oh god, or uh, at least uh, and the ability to enjoy even small things. So yes, that's, yes, that's nice yes. to hear. That's nice to hear. Um. Well, thank you so much. Uh. This has been really wonderful to talk with you. Oh, good. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get twelve issues for twenty-one ninety-seven, visit harpers.org/save.